Open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 to 23, if you will. The Word of God says this, verse 15 to 23. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And, <clears throat> and when the Syrians came down against, against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people uh, with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened the eyes, their eyes and, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go, go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And he went and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on riots into the land of Israel. <clears throat> Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask at this moment that you would just speak, Lord. We come with reverence, knowing that you reveal yourself in this portion. We ask at this moment that it would be you that we hear, Lord God. It would be your voice, Lord, leading us, Lord, through your spirit. That it would be your spirit, Lord, bringing conviction to our hearts. Not conviction from a man. Not being persuaded by man, but purely by your spirit, O God. We ask this so humbly in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. This passage has to be one of those extraordinary passages that display the power of God, that have inspired many to trust in the Lord. It magnifies our God's you know, omniscience and His omnipotence. That there is nothing in this world that can withhold the will of God. And it's such a wonderful passage of comfort and encouragement to us as believers as well. But at the same time, this passage too can be subject of misuse and abuse. Which the preacher may at times lay way too much emphasis upon the man instead of God and our need of it. You know, this passage, if not dealt with utter reverence for our God can be twisted, you know, this portion can be mishandled, this portion can be taken into this, into this, or create this God-like of, of genie-like, um, if you will, that he's kind of like a slave to our will and not his own. And this is done when the preacher takes his audience and he kind of inserts his audience or, or, or his hearers into 
the story, which is fine, but turning them into the main character instead of the true living God that is revealed here and, and, and take God that is revealed here and make him into kind of like a, just a byproduct of our diligence and our faith that we express. That if we are like Elijah, then this is what's going to occur in our lives. That's generally the way that this portion is dealt with. And tonight, I guess, well, today, my goal will be to, to honor and bring glory to our God and place Him at the centerpiece. That His glory may be displayed. That the glory in which He has decided will be His greatest display of His power from this text. Not one that we imagine, not one that we envision for ourselves when we face our troubles, right? But one that really manifests and displays His ultimate glory, His ultimate power for humanity. So with that in mind, allow me to firstly establish a little bit of context that surrounds this portion as we begin to make our way through this and, and, and see what, what uh, God has for us in this portion, what, where He ultimate leads us to um, from this as, as a demonstration of what, what God has done and continues to do to this day. So we are in a time where Israel is in the middle of war again. And again, you know, constantly uh, Israel is in battle. In particular, in this moment, they're in the middle of war with Syria. They're in these constant battles back and forth between the two kingdoms. And in the midst of this, God has raised up a prophet for himself by the name of Elisha, the one who was chosen by God to succeed his predecessor, uh, Elijah. These prophets are charged by God with a special commission, and that is to the writing of Scripture, right? And that is why God sends them out with signs and wonders. That's why you see in Scripture uh, these clusters of miracles and signs and wonders is whenever God would send out these men who were going to be inspired to write Scripture. And so he does this with his prophets and his apostles, right? And, and as such, and obviously Jesus ultimately, right? When, he, when Jesus comes, he's, he's coming with signs and wonders. And, and we see the same here with Elisha. We see signs and wonders as he is one of those prophets of God that was going to be declaring the word of God. And so the portion that we read is a great demonstration of that. These signs and wonders that accompanied these men, these prophets of God. And we see that Elisha has the same anointing as Elijah. That at the word of, you know, of God's prophet, things, these great signs and wonders occurred. It says in verse 18, And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and, and said, Please strike these people with blindness. So he, God, strike them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. That's amazing. You know, the word here for prayer is, is kidbah, which simply means according to his word, according to his word. It's important that we understand the role of the prophets, lest we begin to embrace a theology that this working of the Lord is also applicable to us today, as many have come to believe and teach. Right? It's important that we know that, that it was according to the word of this prophet. Many have suggested that if you, you speak it, 
you claim it, right? And it's going to happen. It comes to pass. And this is simply not true. These prophets were charged with a special role to carry with them the word of God. God honored the word of Elisha as he did with Elijah at Mount Carmel. Because it was not their own word that they spoke, but God's word as he elected these prophets. Men who were to write scripture. Men who were going to be inspired and led and carried away by the spirit to pen down the very words that are breathed out from the mouth of God. So unless you think that you are going to be writing scripture anytime soon, then do not think that this is the normative. This is not something that is going to be happening today. In the same way that it did with Elisha in this moment. You say something and God's just going to make it happen because you said it. That's ridiculous. That's a, a absurd thought. That's not how things work in, in scripture. That's not a biblical concept. It's ridiculous. These men were charged with a specific, with, with a specific role. And that's to carry the word of God and they would be writing this down. We are not those men. We are not charged with that. But Elisha indeed had this special calling as a prophet. And, and as such, God would reveal to Elisha the strategies or plans that the king of Syria was devising against God's people. Every time that the king of Syria was going to attack them at a certain time and place, God would reveal it to the prophet and the prophet would share it with the king of Israel. And so they, they just made sure to kind of stay clear of that place or during that time. You know, every time that they would go and, and try and trap them, they would always just miss them. They will escape. And as a result of this, the king of Syria assumed, as probably anyone he would have, right? Would just anyone would have thought that there must have been some traitor within the midst, whispering in the ear of the king of Israel. But it wasn't so. It was the omniscient and omnipresent God that was revealing it to his instrument. And so this news came to the ear of the king of Syria and decided that if they're going to be successful in, in getting rid of, of Israel, then they have to get rid of the real problem, or at least the way they saw it. And that was Elisha. We need to get rid of Elisha. He's the one that's kind of tripping us over. He's the one that's, that's kind of blocking our way to success. So that's the plan. That's the thought of the king. It says, if we could just get rid of Elisha, then everything is going to be okay. No prophet, no more failures. That's the way they saw it. If we can get rid of him, everything is good. Such a creaturely thought to think, by the way, that God was going to lose if he had lost Elisha. Right? That's such a human way of thinking. That if we could just remove Elisha out of the picture, we can get God. Nevertheless, God humors them and allows the king of Syria to gather up a large army in order to capture just this one man, this prophet, this man of God. So the trap is set. They have surrounded Elisha and his companion. By the way, no one really knows who he is. 
And they are finally going to be victorious. They've captured him. He's on his own. And look at him. How is he going to defeat an army? It's just two people. You know, they, they can't even imagine that how this guy is going to... There's just no possible way. They don't know that God, that the God of Israel is not only omniscient though, but he's also the sovereign king of all of creation. He's the one who knows the beginning from the end and is the one who uses means to accomplish his will. The fact that they were even able to isolate and surround Elisha was purely because God had allowed him to do so. You cannot put one over God. You can't outsmart him. If you are there, it's because God has allowed you to be there. And so this leads us into the portion that we've just read. These men have Elisha surrounded, but they don't know who God is, but they're about to find out. Let's read verses 15 and 17 once again. The word of God says this. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As I mentioned to you before, there is no mention as to who it is that this uh, young man uh, is or was, uh, this young man who was with Elisha at this moment. But since we, uh, we confess that God is sovereign, he was placed there for our benefit, we believe. That this event may be written down for our edification and for the display of our great God's glory. Now, when it comes to relating ourselves into a story, we, we have this tendency to envision ourselves as the heroic figure that scripture presents to us. But that is not who we should be seeing ourselves. If we want to have a biblical perspective of interpreting and, and especially applying a historical narrative to ourselves. We should never place ourselves in the heroic's place, you know, in the hero's place, in the, the main character's place. We all love to think of ourselves as the ones that we can potentially become, you know, the Elisha in the story. That if we were to exercise enough faith into any given situation, then we too could have that, that spiritual insight to see beyond the natural realm and into the spiritual realm. But we are not Elisha. In this story, we are the nameless nobody who is fearful and on the verge of passing out in fear. That's who we are in this story. That's who you are in this story. You are not the Elisha in this story. Jesus is the Elisha of this story being prefigured for us in this account to display his glory, not our own. We are those who are constantly struggling with fear and doubt and confusion. When we are overwhelmed with our mess of a life and at times feel as though we are about to pass out. That's who we are in this story. I am never the Elisha 
who just faces an army of, of, of enemies without any fear in heart. No, that's not us. That's not you and me. No, we are that servant who's about to humiliate himself because he just saw the army that he's about to face. He is one of those. We are one of those guys, I should say. We are that. Elisha wonderfully exemplifies for us in this foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus. Because as we've come to know through Hebrews and even the writings of John, that Jesus is the intercessor between man and God. It is Jesus' role as high priest that intercedes for his sheep through prayer. We need only to remember the story of Peter when Jesus says to him that Satan placed his request in, into shifting or sifting sorry, him like wheat, to which the sifting did occur. God allowed that to happen in Peter's life. But Jesus said to him, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It is Christ who intercedes for us preemptively. Why does he do this? Because we're strong? No, of course not. Rather because he knows just how weak you and I are. So we know that it is, it's Christ's role to intercede for us in prayer. As foreshadowed here in the story of Elisha. But note also that there, there was not even a request on the part of the servant for courage. You know, he was weak and terrified. And sometimes we come before God in prayer in certain circumstances and ask God that he would give us strength and courage and boldness. But sometimes those prayers are really just cover-ups for what really lies within the pit of our corrupt hearts. Sometimes we pray those prayers so that others may see us and praise us for how holy or spiritual we are. The servant only came to, to Elisha in fear. That's, that's the way he came. He didn't come requesting anything. But all he did was pour out his heart to Elisha, the servant of God. This is all we need to do in our prayers, really. When we come before the greater Elisha. Our prayers need only be, Master, what shall I do? I'm afraid. I'm so fearful. I've seen the enemy that, that I have to face. But what shall I do? Whatever you say, I will do. Let us come before the Lord in honesty. Without expecting or desiring that God would give us anything. But rather just walk in obedience. For whatever He has, He will go through it. Even if it means we look like a fool. Then so be it. But we see through the example of Elisha that the Lord is gracious in his intercessory. He asks of God that the servant's eyes would be open to see. And immediately he saw the mountain, right? A greater army up on that mountain than that of Syria. He had a vision, spiritual foresight by the grace of God. And he does not boast in this. Notice that, right? He doesn't boast. Look, I saw this revelation. I saw this, this, you know, this vision. Do you, do you think when, you know, he really told the story, he would have told it with pride in his heart, bragging about how he had a vision that no one else had? I am the one that saw this. No, of course not. 
Any grace given to man is given by God. And so we make everything of the giver and nothing of the one who is give, to whom it is given. We think of Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, the writer of the majority of the New Testament. What does he say of himself? By the grace of God, I am what I am. He was talking about his apostleship. And as he reflected upon his ministry as an apostle, he could easily recognize that he was the hardest working apostle. Was he boasting? No, because he goes on to say about his own work, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. He didn't boast. Anything that we have, anything that we receive, anything that is given to us, know that it is given to us by grace. We are not great. We are not mighty. We are just like that young servant next to Elisha who is about to pee his pants in fear. And I say that like with humility because that is exactly how we are. By, by the grace of God, we see beyond the physical and into the spiritual. Let's read verse 18 to 19. <clears throat> Word of God says this, verse 18 and 19. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Now, if we accept that the relationship between Elisha and his servant resembles a more realistic and more biblical representation of who you and I are in this story, <clears throat> of who we are as Christians, that, that this is who it resembles, it resembles us as Christians, our relationship with Jesus, then we too can take this as well uh, as, as being reflective of humanity. Um, it is a great representation, however, not of the believer, but of those who are still not converted, those who are still remaining as enemies of the Lord, those who have convinced themselves that they have finally figured Christianity out and set themselves up as men or women who can prove why Jesus and the faith are false. We can fit ourselves into this picture as well because we weren't born Christians. There was a time when we were those enemies as well. So we can fit ourselves into the story of both the, the servant of Elisha as a believer and the enemy as our past life, right? They are just like the, these Assyrians, those who stand outside of Jesus. They are just like these Assyrian men, including and especially the king. We, are, we were either at one stage the king's this king, this king of Syria and his army, or we still are. But let us see what we find here in the story as we continue with our consideration that Elisha is a foreshadow of Jesus. The scriptures say that, that just as Elisha prayed that his servant would see, he now prayed that God would close the eyes of his enemies. He prayed that they would uh, be made blind. Now, when we think of blindness in scripture is generally used as a way to describe our spiritual state before coming to the Lord. And so applying this interpretation of this text would, would be consistent with scripture. 
That is the, the Lord. It is the Lord who blinds his enemies. Now here is where generally people kind of sound off their misguided opinions. When we begin to say that God is the one who is sovereign and nothing happens outside his will, generally what, what is argued is then how can God place judgment upon man if indeed it is God that blinds us? Their attempt is to, to kind of place sin as originating with God and not man and thus making us victims of God instead of haters of God. We place God as the oppressor and we the oppressed when we begin to say that God is sovereign. That's the way they try to kind of wiggle the way out of this, out of responsibility. But we, what we always seem to ignore and bypass uh, God's for the blinding of man is not the result of their punishment. Their sin is. We always ignore that. We always kind of bypass and ignore that. That God's further blinding of man is not the result of their punishment. Their sin is. Now let us take the story that we've looked at. Was it not the king of Syria and his merry men, the instigators in their pursuit against God's people? In the same way, we are the ones who sin against God and any added blindness that God places over us is not the cause of our sin. Our sin is the cause of our sin. God generally blinds or hardens hearts as a form of his judgment of the sin he has already identified in the sinner. And we have many examples of this from a form of blindness in scripture where we can think of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the story of Exodus when Pharaoh would not let Israel the Israelites go. He had he had hatred in his heart already. His intention and ill desire towards Israel was already present in him. God did not put that there. But God, being sovereign, used it for his glory. A follow-up question might be, how does God harden hearts? Well, that's explained for us in Romans. When Paul describes sinners as being handed over to their own lusts, it is as though that God removes his restraints and lets them go to enjoy their sins. And as they indulge themselves in sin, they simultaneously harden their hearts all the more to the truth and conviction of sin. And so we see that Jesus also teaches that God would keep the truth from the wise and reveal it to the simple. And this is the same concept of withdrawing his truth, his light from sinful men. And he shows grace and mercy to whom he wills, lest man should boast in their wisdom. So we conclude that this, this blinding, this blinding uh, aspect is an added element to sinful man as a judgment placed upon them, not as the cause of their sinful state. The truth is that we don't like the idea of a sovereign God because we want to be sovereign over ourselves. And so we buy into this lie about this so-called free will of man. And so we rebel against the sovereign God, just as the king of Syria did, in hopes that they will be liberated from you know, God's bondage. Such foolishness. We claim to have free will, and yet... There is still to be found a man who out of his own so-called free will has stopped sinning. There is no such man. Brothers and sisters and whoever's listening. We all want to boast about our free will, but point to me to the man that out of his own free will has stopped sinning entirely. 
There is no such man. Why? Because our so-called free will is not free. It is in bondage to sin. We are slaves to it. And only true liberation comes not from rebelling against the sovereign God, but rather submitting to Him. He who the Lord sets free is free indeed. Let's move on and let's see this liberation kind of depicted for us in this story as we wrap things up. The last verses of this portion. As soon as, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on rides in, into the land of Israel. Following on with our interpretive lens of seeing Christ as the main character, foreshadowed by Elisha. We can see as to where we will be taking these final verses, I think. If, you, if you've been following along, you might be able to kind of uh, see where I'm heading with this. The account recalls for us that after Elisha blinded them, he led them into the kingdom of Samaria, which was the northern kingdom, uh, which at the time was ruled by King Jehoram. Uh, so what seemed to these men initially as having finally surrounded man, the man of God, right? They ended up being led into their own enemy's territory and being made captives themselves. They now were the ones surrounded by a large army and, and a king who, was, who has the authority to, and, and the right to kill them on the spot because of what they, their intentions was. They, they had every right. The king of Israel had every right to execute these men right where they stood. But as we read, that is not what occurred. Instead, we see that Elisha is leading the, the, uh, leading the, the king um, to or leading these men to this king, not, not for their execution, but rather to the display of the king's mercy upon them. Men who have traveled long distance, and you got to think about, upon this, with minimal food and water, they would have been starving. Humanly speaking, what would generally occur in these situations? Would it not be that if you know that these men's original intention is, is to kill the prophet and then move on to the nation of Israel and kill the king and kill the people. That was phase two. Then, <clears throat> then wouldn't, you, wouldn't you, at least historically speaking, wouldn't you consider that the thing that would have occurred, knowing that they've, cap they've, they've captive or they've led um, the, the enemies captive, that the natural response, at least as, as war would dictate, they would have been tortured. They would have been starved to death as punishment and as a message to Syria and any other opposing kingdom. 
that this is how you build a solid reputation of don't mess with us. <laughs> it's a much more effective way than sharing a post on social media. I can tell you that much, right? People would get the idea you do not mess with us if you were to torture them, kill them. You came, you know, a, a whole army against two people and you were destroyed and now you guys are going to pay for it. Instead, what happened? That's not what happened. Instead, they were given a banquet. Now we must kind of keep in mind that, that this is a large number of soldiers that looked to invade. This means that they would have had to really dig deep for supplies, right? Supplies belonging to the king and his people. This was generosity beyond measure. One that they clearly weren't deserving of whatsoever. And isn't this not what Christ has done for all of us? Were we not the enemies of the king with our attempts to dethrone God and place ourselves as king? And yet Christ, as we are seen in the demonstration of Elijah, really leads us into the kingdom. And he shows us mercy and grace beyond what we deserve. There's no, not a greater love demonstration than having the Son of God hang on the cross. That cross that should have, have been belonged to us. But that would not have been enough. That would, would in and of itself been still too merciful for us. The real gift that, you know, that we will never ever come to know or understand is, is that. That He bore the full wrath of God that belonged to us for the glory of God. I mean, that's insane. That's amazing. Like one thing is for Jesus to hang on a cross and be, be crucified. Something that we don't deserve for him to take that in, in, in our place is one thing. But to, to endure the full wrath of God for his elect is something that we will never grasp. It's something that we should be humbled by. This act of generosity did not go unnoticed by the soldiers. I want to point that out to you. We see that in the final verse of the passage saying, And the Syrians did not come again on riots into the land of Israel. This demonstration of mercy led them to a repentance. Repentance is that act of changing one's mind and not returning to their old sin again. That is not to say that Israel was war free from this moment on. It simply means that these particular men never once again took arms against Israel. For in the very next sentence, we see that the kingdom went under siege, but not by these men. These men were changed. They saw the grace of a king. In the wake of all the intended violence that this portion underlines for us, we can't help but see a model for us to imitate in our Christian walk. And with this, I'm finishing. There's no doubt that the gospel exposes us to a, a people who are willing to choose to make us their enemies. Whether it be a, uh, our, on our stance of, of social agendas that, that our culture is trying to convince us of. Or whether it's something far more fundamental like our confession that Jesus is not a savior, but rather the only savior. His claim alone sets us apart from the rest of the world. 
no matter what you believe in. As soon as you say that we don't believe that Jesus is a savior, we believe that Jesus is the savior, as in the only exclusive savior that makes or creates enemies. But nevertheless, whether we face men and women who wish to harm us, our lives or whatever because of our faith, or whether they simply marginalize us, we must still take the example of Elisha, who is our foreshadow of Christ. We still must do every, our very best to bring them to the kingdom, right? that they may experience the generosity of the king, that he might give them sight and change their nature. Though men may rise up in violence against us, let us pray for them as Christ instructs us to. Let us love them in the love that we, we claim to have experienced. Let us show that to them that God may be glorified. Show them that love. But brothers, this kind of boldness does not happen by simply praying for more boldness or more courage. Building the strength you know, of a faithful servant is not deposited into us overnight. A a, a, a courage and, and boldness and confession and, you know, the strength to go and evangelize does not happen by willfully forcing ourselves to do it. It comes from knowing the true living God. It comes from hours and hours spent pouring over the word of God and allowing the word of God to permeate our minds and hearts. That it would lead us to have a greater confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Lord who has revealed himself to be the omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign king of all. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we just thank you, O God, for this reminder that we are not the center of, of biblical stories, but you are. That you have led us, Lord, and blessed us, O God, with this portion that we as believers are that servant of Elisha, fearful, constantly doubting and, and uh, questioning and wondering how we're going to survive. That's who we are. And that Elisha perfectly depicts for us, beautifully depicts for us, our Lord and Savior. We thank you, God, that we were once the enemies, the king of Syria and his army, thinking that we could outsmart your plans, thinking that we can outdo you, Lord God. But we thank you, God, that in your grace, even as we were planning to attack you, that attack you used to lead us to your kingdom, and you showed us your grace, your generosity. That changed us. Lord, I pray that whoever may be hearing this, I pray that you would use it, Lord, as a reminder of your grace and our need of you. Let your spirit bring conviction. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.